Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It is Friday. Friday! So happy to have my longtime friend Erica Hill with me today and next week. Thank you for nice getting up be early. With you. Yeah, great to be with you. There's a lot going on this Friday. Let's get started with five things to know for Friday, May 26. Sources tell CNN the White House negotiators appear to be moving closer to avoiding a default. The agreement being discussed would lift the debt ceiling and cap spending for two years. There is still a lot of work to be done, though. Memorial Day weekend kicking off what is expected to be a very busy travel summer. AAA expects air travel to be higher than pre-COVID levels. And this is a critical stress test this weekend for airlines as they face staffing shortages and air traffic control problems. The Washington Post reporting two workers at Mar-a-Lago moved boxes of papers one day before the FBI visited the former president's home to pick up classified documents last year. The Post also reporting Trump kept classified documents in his office at times and show them to others. A lot to get into there. Also in Texas, lawmakers recommending articles of impeachment against the state's attorney general. They're accusing Ken Paxton of bribery, unfitness for office, and abuse of public trust. And the Boston Celtics staying alive with a dominant Game 5 win against the Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. Miami now leads that series 3-2. to two. Seen in this morning starts right now. Does this mean I want the Celtics to win? It might. And the Heat, they have white There's some white jerseys. There, right? Do you know about sports? Uh, you know, I, I pick up minimal things <laughs> from my husband and my kids. What I do know is my kids are Pacers fans. Oh, so there's that. But I hey, know. nice work by the Celtics. There you go. Well, you know more than I do. Yeah, staying alive so we can see more of the series. It's fun. Also, are you going away this Memorial Day if you're flying? Buckle up, airports across America gearing up for the busiest Memorial Day weekend in years as the nation bounces back from the pandemic. Take a live look at O'Hare in Chicago. Demand for flights has been skyrocketing and AAA is expecting the number of air travelers to exceed pre-COVID levels. Nearly three and a half million Americans will fly this weekend. That's according to AAA. Airports are the busiest they expect since 2005. Pete Muntean live at Reagan National, just outside the nation's capital. Pete, who tells us to get to the airport like three hours in advance, which will I will never do. <laughs> what are we looking at this weekend? I don't weekend? do it either, I admit. <laughs> what, what's the weekend going to be like? <laughs> you know, the TSA anticipates, Poppy, uh, that today will be the busiest day of the weekend. But you got to think back to last year. Memorial Day really kicked off that summer of cancellations. Airlines insist they are ready for these big crowds this time around. But the real test will be this weekend that we will really know coming up on Memorial Day. It is the start of a summer of tests for air travel, with the Transportation Security Administration planning to screen 10 million passengers between Thursday and Monday. The world's busiest airport in Atlanta will be even busier than normal, with officials there anticipating 300,000 passengers a day.
Many of us are still trying to make up for the time we lost during the pandemic. From TSA's perspective, we are ready. We are up over, finally over, pre-pandemic levels. Delta Airlines says holiday weekend ticket sales are up 17% from last year. American Airlines says it alone will serve 2.9 million passengers. United Airlines says this will be the busiest Memorial Day holiday in more than a decade. This weekend will be a test of the system. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says flight cancellations are down after last summer's repeated meltdowns. Airlines insist they are right-sized, operating fewer flights on larger airplanes, and right-staffed. A CNN analysis shows the industry has hired nearly 48,000 new workers in the last year. We're doing everything we can to uh, press airlines to deliver that good service. And if there is an issue, we have your back. Though airlines worry it's the federal government that could cause delays. Two in 10 air traffic controller jobs are empty. That's 3,000 positions nationwide. This week, back-to-back staffing issues in Denver forced the FAA to slow flights. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby calls air traffic control shortages his number one concern. That doesn't just impact those flights, that bleeds over to the whole system for the rest of the day. For now, the FAA has opened up 169 new, more efficient flight routes up and down the East Coast, even limiting space launches to off-peak times. For passengers, all that matters is getting where they want to go, knowing one snag could slow the start of summer. If things run smoothly, people do their jobs efficiently, then it's a great trip. Pack your patience. I'm prepared. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I get home without a hitch. This is the live look at the TSA line here at Reagan National Airport. And despite all of this demand, airfare is actually down a little bit. Travel site Hopper says the average round trip ticket on Memorial Day, only $273. But think about international travel. Way, way different. Boy, is it a doozy. The average round trip this weekend, $1,300. That's so interesting because United Airlines says international travel this time around actually up 16%. A lot of people have been sitting on those plans since before the pandemic, Bobby. They want to go. And they'll pay. Pete, thank you. (laughs) Sources tell CNN White House and GOP negotiators are moving closer to a deal on raising the debt limit. But, and you knew there was a but coming here, with less than six days to go before preventing a potentially catastrophic default that could crash the economy, we'll see if it's enough. A growing number of House lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are now warning they may not vote for the deal. 35 hardline Republicans have sent a letter of demands to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Those demands include slashing funding to the IRS and a new FBI headquarters. Here's what some lawmakers told Manu Raju before leaving for their recess. You're concerned about the direction? Of the yeah, I am. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it looks like we're watering it down, which is not acceptable. I'm concerned about the rumors that I've heard that there might be some sort of a deal for a whole lot less in return uh, that we need from a policy standpoint, from a fiscal standpoint. And if that were true, that would absolutely collapse the Republican majority. Several House Democrats are warning the White House their support for a debt deal is not guaranteed if it caves to Republicans and includes things like stricter work requirements for food stamps, Medicaid, and other benefits for low-income Americans. There are going to be votes that are going to be required by House Democrats, and we can't vote for something that goes against uh, our constituents and their interests. If they're trying to cut and 
threaten to stop people's Social Security or Medicare, if they want to cut education, they can do it with their votes. I am not part of the Republican caucus. CNN's Arlette Signs is tracking all of this. She joins us live from the White House this morning. Um, so where do things stand this morning, Arlette, in terms of these negotiations? Well, Erica, I think this morning what is clear is that these negotiators are racing against the clock towards that June 1st uh, potential deadline of making these next 24 to 48 hours incredibly critical when it comes to the negotiations. Now, there is still no final deal, but we are getting some contours of some agreements that they are starting to eye. Sources have told us that they've been working towards the potential of raising the debt ceiling for two years and pairing that with spending caps uh, for the same length of time. Now, those caps would not in fact impact programs related to defense and veterans. But the two sides uh, still caution that they are they are still working through some of these uh, final details. Uh, and there's no guarantee that they will get to that final agreement just yet. There are also some still major sticking points when it comes to the issue of work requirements uh, for some social safety net programs like Medicare and food stamps. Now, uh, the House has left uh, for the weekend, though those members are on notice that they could return uh, within 24 hours if there is some type of agreement. But this is really just heading into a very serious crunch time for both the White House and Republican lawmakers. The president and Republicans have said that they don't want to see a default in this country, but they are racing against that clock. Uh, we are now six days away from June 1st. Uh, and also what is clear here that you heard from those lawmakers is that it's also going to be incredibly difficult potentially to corral these members together, trying to get enough support to get something over the finish line. So all eyes will really be on this weekend to see if the negotiators can hone in on a final deal. Arlette signs with the very latest force. Arlette, appreciate it. Thank you. Also, this news developing in Washington Post exclusive reporting yesterday, and we have more on it this morning. Two people working for former President Donald Trump moved boxes of papers at his Mar-a-Lago estate the day before FBI agents came to collect classified documents. The Washington Post cites people familiar with the matter. It also adds that, quote, investigators have come to view the timing as suspicious and an indication of possible obstruction. Our Caitlin Polance is following all of this. I mean, the timeline they lay out here and the dates of the movement of these boxes on June 2nd when people came to Mar-a-Lago to look through after the subpoena on June 3rd is just critical here. It is. It was a critical time, and it was a time when Donald Trump and all of the people working for him needed to turn over all of the documents with classified markings in his possession back to the federal government. There was a subpoena for them, and June 3rd was the day that the FBI came down to Mar-a-Lago and collected what an attorney for Donald Trump has found. This Washington Post reporting is saying that uh, two of Donald Trump's employees were moving boxes that showed uh, that they were being moved into a storage area on June 3rd. So his lawyer had searched that area um, at some point in time before June 3rd. There were boxes, documents moved in. We also are understanding that at some point in time, boxes were moved out of that storage area. And so when you put this all together, the timeline is a little fuzzy on exactly what happened up to June 3rd. Uh, but it indicates that there may be not just one instance of obstruction that the Justice Department is looking into and that they're collecting evidence about a lot of 
of things, a lot of movement of boxes at Mar-a-Lago while there was a subpoena saying, get all of the classified documents under control and get them back to the federal government, to the grand jury in an investigation. So it, we, we still are trying to flesh out exactly what this means, but it is an important part of this ongoing investigation. Yeah, yeah. it definitely raises some more questions. Uh, Caitlin, the judge, um, Judge Mehta actually also sentencing in a separate story, sentencing the far right uh, founder of the Alf Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, sentenced to 18 years behind bars for leading that attack on the Capitol for seditious conspiracy here. The judge really not mincing words in that sentencing. How did Rhodes react? Well, Stuart Rhodes uh, was had no remorse whenever he spoke to the judge. He repeated that he believed the election was illegitimate in 2020, that he believed that the Biden administration, the government was still illegitimate as well. Uh, and the judge reacted quite harshly, but even setting aside what Rhodes said, uh, the reason that the judge reacted so harshly was because of the crime that was committed here. Seditious conspiracy. That is what Stuart Rhodes was convicted of as the founder of the Oath Keepers. He was the reason uh, that the Oath Keepers assembled in Washington on January 6th and were ready to march into the Capitol um, and help and show people that uh, add a, a layer of legitimacy to this riot. They were dressed in um, riot gear, tactical gear. Uh, and, you know, what Judge Mehta said yesterday, this federal judge, as he was sentencing, he said uh, to Stuart Rhodes, I dare say, Mr. Rhodes, and I have never said this to anyone I have sentenced, you pose an ongoing threat and peril to our democracy and the fabric of this country. And he reminded him over and over again that violence was not the way to achieve something in a democratic uh, society in America whenever you disagree with the election. Um, so that is what he, he said, and that is why Stuart Rhodes got 18 years uh, in federal prison. I thought those words were so striking, reading, uh, reading the judge's comment about, you know, an ongoing threat. Caitlin, thank you very much for the reporting. Strikes reported overnight in Ukraine and in Russia. Children we know were injured after a medical facility was hit in Dnieper. We're going to bring you live near the front lines in eastern Ukraine. New overnight, an Indiana doctor has been reprimanded for publicly talking about providing abortion services to a 10-year-old rape victim. Overnight, a series of drone and missile strikes reported across Ukraine, including the capital region of Kyiv. President Zelensky says a medical facility was hit in the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro. 16 people are reported injured, including a six-year-old and a three-year-old. Military officials say the, uh, they downed most of Russia's 17 cruise missiles and 31 attack drones. Meanwhile, in Russia, a large explosion was heard overnight in the city of uh, Kransnandar, and a building was damaged there. The governor of Belgorod is also reporting shelling. He says four homes were damaged. There were no casualties reported so far from that. Let's go to Sam Kiley. He's live in eastern Ukraine with more. Sam, what can you tell us, especially those children? Well, once again, a large city like Dnipro has been hit. Uh, at the moment, the casualty figures are lower than some of the more atrocious strikes which have been directed at uh, or at least fallen upon residential buildings, uh, particularly in Dnipro. Uh, this one, as you say, has got 16 uh, wounded. There are four people missing, one confirmed dead in this missile strike, which uh, Ukraine's first lady has described as a cynical act. Uh, to be honest, the fact of the matter is that the, you, the Russians are profligate in their 
uh, attacks across uh, civilian areas uh, right across the country. Sometimes their aim, sometimes they're simply firing uh, into the landscape more generally with the hope of hitting something. This may well be uh, fall into that latter category. But at the same time, uh, the Ukrainians continue to try to rattle the Russians behind uh, the border now with uh, Russia, with reportedly more shelling from Ukraine into border areas, countering the shelling that has come in uh, for months now, from day one of the war, from those border areas into Ukraine along the northern border, particularly in uh, Belgorod province. And then we've got this mysterious uh, explosion or fire much deeper into Russia uh, with no confirmation from either side really as to what has been uh, the cause of that. But all of this part of a pattern really uh, in which the Russians continue to hit civilian targets inside Ukraine, whilst the Ukrainians continuing to try to destabilize the Russia as part ultimately of the early stages of a summer offensive. Sam Kiley in eastern Ukraine, appreciate your reporting. Thank you. This morning, most abortions in South Carolina are now banned after six weeks. That is, of course, before many women even know they are pregnant. Governor Henry McMaster signing the so-called Fetal Heartbeat and Protection from Abortion Act into law yesterday, effective immediately. Important to note, there is no fetal heartbeat at six weeks, though some cardiac activity can be detected. The only exceptions here include saving the patient's life, fatal fetal animal. Anomalies and victims of rape and incest, they will be given up to 12 weeks. Any physician who knowingly violates that law will have their license to practice in the state revoked and they could face jail time. Several plaintiffs are suing to stop that law. Breaking overnight, this the Indiana Medical Licensing Board is going to sanction Dr. Caitlin Bernard. You may remember her name because she's the doctor who provided abortion services to a 10 year old rape victim in Ohio last year. Listen. I don't think that anybody would have been looking into this story as any different than any other interview that I've ever given if it was not politicized the way that it was by public figures in our state and in Ohio. So the board found that Bernard violated privacy laws by discussing the case with a journalist. Athena Jones, our colleague, has been tracking all of this. This was a very long hearing. What can you tell us? Good morning, Poppy. It was very long. They didn't begin deliberating until about 14, hour, uh, 14 hours into this, this very long day. And you just told the details of the case, but this was all based on, a, on an interview this doctor gave to the Indy Star. That's the largest newspaper in Indiana. It got a lot of attention because uh, of the issue of a 10-year-old uh, pregnant uh, young girl from Ohio who was had to come to Indiana to have the abortion procedure because she couldn't get it done in Ohio. There was a six-week ban. Her child's gestational age was beyond that. And so this doctor gave that, that interview. It got a lot of attention, and that is what set off uh, this complaint by the attorney general of the state. She's been found liable on those three counts of violating patient privacy laws. She'll be fined $3,000 and will receive a letter of reprimand. But, and this is important, she can continue practicing medicine. Uh, this, a lot of this argument during the whole day came down to uh, this idea of what, are, what is protected health information. Uh, this doctor revealed to this reporter the age of this child, 10-year-old from Ohio who was pregnant, and the gestational age of the fetus, six weeks and about three days. Uh, her side argued that this was not protected health information, and this kind of data is not listed under the 18 examples of protected health information on HIPAA. That is the federal law that protects patient privacy. So that was their argument. Another expert on HIPAA for the other side disagreed, and this is how the board came down. She will ultimately be reprimanded, uh, but she will be able to continue practicing. And what are we hearing in terms of 
reaction uh, from both the doctor and from others? Well, the doctor says that, look, the, the, this patient, the, this, her, her, the doctor says that she didn't do anything wrong. She's never been reprimanded by this board before. And she followed hospital policy, did not violate uh, federal privacy laws. Here is what the attorney general of Indiana, Todd Rakita, had to say in reaction. He said this case was about patient privacy and the trust between the doctor and patient that was broken. What if it was your child or your patient or your sibling who was going through a sensitive medical crisis and the doctor who you thought was on your side ran to the press for political reasons? It's not right. And the facts we presented today made that clear. And so uh, a victory for, for, for the AG there. Uh, but in the end, this doctor is able to continue practicing. Athena, thank you very much. Appreciate the reporting. Just ahead here, new CNN polling offering a bit of a mixed bag for President Biden's re-election bid. We'll take a closer look at what the numbers say about his chances and what they tell us about the voters. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, a live look for you this morning at airports in Atlanta and Chicago on this getaway Friday on Memorial Day weekend. We're keeping a close eye on conditions at the airports and roads. We'll keep you posted throughout the morning. Looks like it's moving. That's always a good sign. Yeah. Uh, some mixed feelings this morning about President Biden's bid for a second term. New CNN polling shows 60 percent of Democratic and Democratic-leaning voters backing Biden in 2024. As you see, there are some 20 percent that they favor Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Just 8 percent are behind author Marion Williamson. Biden is facing headwinds, though, from the overall public. His favorability rating has now dropped from 42 percent in December to just 35 percent. And when asked specifically about a second term... Only a third of Americans feel a 2024 win for Biden would be a win for the country. Joining us now, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison. She's a former White House senior policy advisor and was National Coalition's director for Biden-Harris 2020. And Chapin Fay, a Republican strategist and managing director at Actum. Good morning. Nice to see both of you this morning. So when we look at this new polling, Ashley, you see the vast majority of Democratic-aligned voters. They're throwing their support behind Biden. But what stood out to me are independent-leaning Democrats Democrats and younger voters, they're really not as enthusiastic. There are questions about messaging. There are questions about what is or is not being sold. How significant do you think that hill is for Biden to climb? Well, I am almost certain that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee by 2024. I appreciate that there are some other folks in the race and that people are interested in becoming familiar with them. But at the end of the day, I think he will be able to become the nominee once again. But I think when you also look at the poll, you see it's so polarizing. People think Trump would be a disaster. People think Biden would be a disaster. And I think it just goes to show that people are looking for other options. So what Biden needs to really do is explain to him what he's done in the last three years and what he will continue to do if reelected. That he, you know, it might not be enough, but that he was able to do bipartisan gun reform, that he was able to do an infrastructure bill that people haven't even really seen the benefits of yet. And I think there's an opportunity. I have said all along, I don't think re-elections are super hard Mm -hmm. and we are coming off a really challenging time in our country. I think the Biden campaign can do it, but they need to make sure that they run a very different campaign than 2020. We're going to have to get on the doors. Remember, we were all locked in our house. And uh, during COVID. And so we're going to have to really get out there, talk to voters, explain to them why we need another four years to keep the country on track. I I just can't get over this number. Can we pull it back up? Sixty six percent of voters in this poll say Biden's 2024 win. If he wins, what will that mean for the country? Sixty six percent say it will be a disaster or a setback. 
They're not hot on Trump either, you know, writ large. But how do you counter those numbers? It's going to be very difficult for him. And I think uh, the problem is, um, you know, his weaknesses are look around us. Right. Uh, New York City is under such strain right now. We're putting migrants in schools with children. Uh, there's open You're borders. You're also sent to New York City by Republican governors. Well, they have to be somewhere. They can't all stay down at the border. Right. That's, 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 that's a fair back point. Here this morning. That's a fair point. Um, but either way, it's a huge problem. And President Biden, the buck stops there, right? So he's getting tarred with all of the things that are going wrong right now, which are a lot. I think that's what's driving these numbers. And you pointed out uh, his real problem is uh, with independents who lean Democrat and young people. If he's already lost those voters, it's going to be very difficult for him to put together a winning coalition. Um, and we still, it's a lifetime away, right? 2024 election day, a lot of money to be spent on both sides. Uh, so I think we'll be having a very different conversation a year from now. Uh, but, but both uh, leading contenders do have some work to do in putting together a winning coalition. There is a lot of time that will pass, but to your point about whether the, uh, and I'm paraphrasing obviously, but what stood out to me is when you were saying, you know, the campaign's going to have to do something a little bit different. That's more than just knocking on doors now that we can all be out and about mask free. It comes down to, as you pointed out, messaging. Do you think this message is getting through to the folks who are going to be overseeing and running this campaign? Are they prepared? I think so. Uh, the campaign manager is not only a close friend, but we've worked for years together. Very smart, very astute, very strategic, and really understanding what average Americans lead. Um, the deputy campaign manager, I, they understand the crisis that we're in. The other thing, though, is... Also, how people receive their information. Look, we just this week had a, a campaign announcement on Twitter, although kind of botched, but it still was going to a social media platform to give people information. So thinking outside the box, how are young people receiving their information? Maybe they're not watching us right now on CNN. They should. But if they're not, they're, we're going to have to talk to them on TikTok. We're going to have to talk to them on different social media platforms, some that might not even be created yet. I will say, though, um, a lot can change in this time period. And I really do think young people showed up in historical numbers, not just in 2020, but in 2022. And when they see some of the Supreme Court decisions that are about to come down and really, you know, Joe Biden always says, don't co compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. When they see some of the policies that Republicans are pushing, <laughs> I think voters will say, I do not want to go down a, a path where we have candidates saying they will pardon people who attack the so Capitol let's, on January Let's 6th. get to that. OK, I want to play you guys. It's um, first Trump mm -hmm. answering that question in the CNN town hall about uh, actually a different interview of Trump about pardoning the January 6th writers, but also DeSantis. Here they are. My question to you is, will you pardon the January 6th rioters who were convicted of federal offenses? I am inclined to pardon many of them. I can't say for every single one, because a couple of them, probably they got out of control. Do you think the January 6th defendants deserve to have their cases examined by a Republican president? And if Trump, let's say, gets charged with federal offenses and you are the president of the United States, would you look at potentially pardoning Trump himself based on the evidence that might emerge of those charges? The DOJ and FBI have been weaponized. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do on day one, um, I will have uh, folks that will get together and look at all these cases who people are victims of weaponization or political targeting, and we will be aggressive at issuing pardons. 
Chapin, you, you bring up the issue of um, Ford pardoning Nixon, and, and you point to that as a way to heal the country. Isn't that different than pardoning January 6 rioters, some who inflicted violence that day? Isn't sure. That quite different. It, 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 is, it is different. It's a little closer to, to when, we were when they were talking about uh, pardoning Trump. Um, but listen, anyone who commits a federal crime gets the opportunity uh, or can try for the opportunity to have a presidential pardon review. Um, I think some of the people uh, on January 6th, and without minimizing you know, uh, the, the horrible events that, that occurred, um, I think some people probably got swept up in a mob. Some people were just following people around and, and they wound up uh, doing things that they shouldn't have done. Um, so maybe they can serve a jail term and, you know, uh, serve their debt to society. Others who committed violence or injured people, of course, a different story. So I think both. What do you mean a different story? They uh, shouldn't be a focus of pardon by the president? No, I, th I think violent criminals, you know, is a, diff a different, very different story than yeah. someone who's served a lot of time for a less violent crime or a nonviolent crime. I think, you know, uh, you know, we talk about criminal justice reform in this country and you can't have it both ways. You know, there are violent criminals being let loose uh, in New York repeatedly on bail reform. Uh, and you're talking about... Some of those about laws, by the way, have been walked back, you know, Correct. Recently. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but if we're talking about criminal justice reform, yes, they should be reviewed as appropriate. And if they are a nonviolent offender uh, that just happened to be there or, you know, get swapped up in the heat of the moment and didn't commit a violent crime, I think they should absolutely be reviewed. I think I they're think both thinking about it in the right way in a case-by-case -case basis, yeah. not just a blanket pardon for people. I think it's a question of, you know, where the priorities lie for an administration in terms of looking at there are a lot of people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses as well. Come back both. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, negotiators inching, we hope, closer to a deal on the debt ceiling. Less than a week to go before a possible default. We'll discuss the impacts here and at home and globally next. Plus, a new video this morning shows a plane's emergency exit door oh. open. Oh, my. That's not the breeze that you want on your flight. Goodness. This is just before landing in South Korea. The <gasps> jet at the time was some 700 feet in the air. A man who officials say was sitting in that emergency exit seat was arrested for allegedly opening the door. Several people were taken to the hospital for hyperventilation. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know that could happen. I thought the pressure meant you can't open it. So that clock is scary. That shows five days, 17 hours as time slips away for a deal to be made on the debt limit. There are now only six days until the Treasury estimates the country will run out of money without a deal. Sources tell CNN the White House and Republicans are edging closer to an agreement. But there is a lot left to do here. And remember, these still have to get through votes in both chambers, right? You've got to actually write the legislative text, all of that ahead. Then the votes have to be whipped. No small task, considering the caucuses from progressives to the hard right freedom caucus in the House. And then after all that, both chambers have to finally vote on the final legislation. That's a lot to get done in less than six days. And most experts agree a default wouldn't actually all experts agree <laughs> a default wouldn't just be a disaster for the U.S. economy. It could be catastrophic on a global scale. Joining us now is economist Mohammed El Arian. He's also the president of Queens College at Cambridge University. Mohammed, good morning. Good morning, Poppy. So what does it actually mean for people if we default on whether it's June 1st or June 8th? Because it's striking to me to hear these skeptics, Republican skeptics in Congress and the frontrunner in the Republican Party, Donald Trump, saying, ah, wouldn't be a huge deal. So probably my working assumption and the working assumption of most economists and markets are that the U.S. will not default. 
because the only people that benefit from a default are the adversaries of the United States. If this is wrong and the U.S. does default, it will tip us into recession. It will make people feel even more insecure. Not only is inflation eating away at their paycheck, but they're going to be worried about their future income. And it would undermine our standing in the global economy. So it would be bad news all around if we do end up defaulting. It's interesting you point about how it would benefit our adversaries, a warning again from the Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley just yesterday saying it would have a very significant negative impact on the uh, readiness and capabilities of the military. In terms of what we just saw from Fitch ratings, this is one of the biggest ratings agencies in the country. They not only warned about uh, the U.S. writ large, but they they also uh, yesterday came down and warned about the government-backed lenders Fannie and Freddie. How significant is that? Does that indicate to you that Fitch may downgrade the U.S. credit rating as S&P did in 2011? So the action they took increases the risk of a downgrade. Having said that, it would not have a material effect. It would not have a material effect on markets. It would not have a material effect on contracts. If the other two agencies were to follow Fitch, that's S&P and Moody's, then that would have an impact. But Poppy, as much as I think that all this is going to go away, there is longer term damage, and three in particular. One is we're diverting attention in Congress, in the administration, from things that we need done to promote sustainable growth and productivity. Two is we, we are eroding trust even more domestically in the policymaking process. And finally, we're signaling to the rest of the world that we can't get our act together. Neither of these three things, none of them are good things. I sat down a few days ago with the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari, and we talked about what the Fed's going to do in a few weeks in terms of rate hikes. I should note, people who follow you know how critical you've been of the Fed and how they've handled inflation for for more than a year now. Um, But I thought this was interesting because he's talked about being open to a pause in rate hikes at this meeting, but potentially raising them after it. When we saw a stop and go Uh, In the 70s, it was a disaster for the economy. It prolonged the pain. But here's how he explains he thinks this time would be different. Let's listen. What I don't want to do is announce that we're done raising rates, have inflation pick back up again, and then we have to reverse ourselves and start raising again. I would rather signal, hey, even if we take June as a skip, we're going to get more information and we're leaving July alive and future meetings alive so we can get more information. It's precisely to avoid that back and forth that we experienced in the 1970s. Is that a sure thing that you can avoid what happened in the 70s? No, unfortunately, the Fed is digging itself deeper and deeper. Look, um, I tweeted just earlier today, the Fed officials are all over the place now. You have those who believe in a skip, what you just heard, which is pause in June and then hike Again, there are those who believe in a pause, which means you stop and you signal that the next one, when it comes, will be down. And there's those who want just a hike. So we're seeing even Fed officials are all over the place. Then we're seeing the Fed chair disagree with Fed staff about the possibility of a recession. Then we see the marketplace disregard what the Fed is telling us for the rest of the year. So what we are, Poppy, is in deep in the world of second best. The Fed missed the window to bring down inflation in an orderly fashion. And now, unfortunately, 
the probability of even more policy mistakes is too high for comfort. Too high for comfort, Mohammed El Arian. Thank you very much. And I hope that prediction that we will not default is absolutely correct. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Thanks. Erica. The Boston Celtics coming back from a three-game deficit to force a game six in the Eastern Conference Finals. We've got the highlights for you next. Boston has won their second straight. And now this will be the talk of the sports world. Oh, my goodness. It has never happened, as we've mentioned multiple times. A team coming back down three games to none and in again. an NBA playoff series. I mean, not a bad night. The Boston Celtics managing to stay alive at the Eastern Conference Files. This Finals, rather, of course, ascends the series now back to Miami for a game six. Andy Scholes is with us now. So, uh, had never been done before. I was reading, too, that Coach Missoula said before game five, this is win or die. Um, yeah, kind of a big deal. It, it certainly is, guys. And as we just heard Kevin Harlan say, you know, NBA teams that are down 3-0 in the best of seven series, they've never won. They're 0 for 150. Only three teams have ever forced a game seven. Only 15 teams even have ever forced a game six. But the Celtics are now one of those teams. They just came out on a mission from the start in game five with that home Boston crowd behind them. The Celtics starting on a 23-7 run. They lead by 15 after the first quarter and just never look back. Four Celtics starters scoring at least 20 points. The Heat, meanwhile, they had no one score 20. Boston wins 110-97 to force game six. When adversity hits, you get to see like what a team is really made of, and I mean it couldn't get no worse than being down 3-0. Um, but we didn't we didn't look around, we didn't go in separate directions. Um, we stayed together. We just got to come out and play harder from jump. So, like I always say, um, it's going to be all smiles. We're going to keep it very, very, very consistent, knowing that we are going to win the next game. Yeah, game six tomorrow night in Miami on TNT. Meanwhile, the Dallas Stars also able to keep their season alive and avoid getting swept by Vegas. And check out the incredible hand-eye coordination by Jason Robertson, batting the puck out of midair twice and into the net for the first of his two goals on the night. And the hero was Joe Pavelski, becoming the oldest player to score an overtime winner in a playoff elimination game at 38 years, 318 days old. Stars win 3-2. to two. They're trying to become the first team ever to come back from a 3-0 hole in the conference finals. Game five of that series in Vegas tomorrow. Uh, but guys, back to the NBA. Uh, you know, the Heat are still up 3-2, but all of the pressure is now on them. If they don't win the game in Miami, game six in Miami tomorrow night, uh, game seven in Boston, back you can Boston. go ahead and you, that's going to be a guaranteed Celtics win. <laughs> you could hear fans. Jimmy Butler like manifesting it. He's like, we will win. We'll be yeah. watching. He's we will confident. see. Andy, yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Also, this for you this morning, a new antibiotic discovered with artificial intelligence, and it may be able to defeat a very dangerous superbug, what researchers are saying this morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Researchers using artificial intelligence say they found an antibiotic that works against a drug-resistant bacteria found in hospitals. In fact, the compound was so precise, it could target the problem pathogen and leave beneficial bacteria in its place. Let's bring in now CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. This sounds like a positive use of AI for once, a non-scary one. 
It really is, Poppy. That is a great way to put it. This is so exciting. Developing new antibiotics has been so difficult, especially against this bacteria. It's called Acidnidobacter baumannii. It is smart. It is super smart. It got straight A pluses in school, I am sure, because it has learned to outwit all, nearly all of the antibiotics that we throw at it, sometimes all the antibiotics that we throw at it. So the traditional way of trying to come up with new antibiotics is you test. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try this. And so you get in the lab and you try all these things. Maybe in, in a good system, you can do test a million different properties to see if they'll work. With AI, what you do is that the computer learns. It learns what's working and what's not. And so you can test many, many more properties or many molecules, many more potential drugs at once. You can do hundreds of millions. You can do a billion until you land on the right one. So these researchers, they came up with one. They put it on a mouse who was wounded and had an infection with that bacteria. And they found that not only did it work, but it didn't harm the good bacteria. Now I will say, this is a great day to be a mouse. This is a wonderful day to be an infected mouse. This is not gonna be on the market for humans anytime soon. It takes years, because you need to make sure this is safe and you need to convince a pharmaceutical company that they'll make money off of it. Yeah. Both of those things are pretty challenging. Okay, but this morning we'll celebrate for, for all for the mice. mice everywhere. Yes. Elizabeth, thank you. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. Well, good morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. I'm not trying to scare you there. I'll tell you what that in was in a moment. traveling for the holiday weekend. So happy to have my friend Erica Hill next <laughs> nice to me today to and next week. But that video was a flight in South Korea today. Someone apparently opened the emergency exit door while the plane was coming in for landing. Thankfully, no one was seriously hurt. Oof. This, as here in the United States, the summer travel season is kicking off and it's promising to be the busiest Memorial Day weekend at airports since 2005. Air travel roaring back after the pandemic will take you live to Reagan National as they face the critical stress test. The Washington Post reporting Donald Trump's employees moved boxes at Mar-a-Lago the day before FBI agents came looking for classified documents last year. And the former president also allegedly held what are being referred to as dress rehearsals for moving his stash of sensitive records. And this remarkable story to tell you about, a man who was paralyzed for more than a decade is walking again after receiving digital implants in his brain and his spine. Two people directly involved in his medical breakthrough will join us live. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Airports across the country gearing up for the busiest Memorial Day weekend. We're smart, we're not flying anymore. <laughs> in two decades, as America bounces back from the pandemic, take a live look inside Chicago O'Hare and Reagan National, just outside of D.C. The demand for flights has been skyrocketing, and AAA is predicting nearly 3.5 million of you will fly this weekend. That is a jump from last year as well as 2019, before COVID struck. Pete Montine joins us live at Reagan this morning. Pete. I, the real stress for airlines. Are they ready? A huge test for the airlines, Poppy. You know, the TSA anticipates screening 10 million people between Thursday, yesterday, and Monday, Memorial Day. Although the numbers we have seen so far 
may make that a conservative estimate. Two. 0.43 million people at airports on Wednesday, screened by the TSA. 2.56 million people on Monday. Both of those numbers bigger than the same day back in 2019 before the pandemic. The number to beat now, the pandemic era air travel record set back on Friday, 2.66 million people. Airports insist they're ready. The TSA insists they're ready. And airlines insist they are ready after the big summer meltdowns of last year that really kicked off with Memorial Day. Think back to then. The airlines canceled about 55,000 flights over the totality of the summer. This time around, they insist that they are right staffed. They have added about 48,000 people industry-wide and that they are right-sized, operating fewer flights using larger airplanes. They say that the meltdowns are a thing of the past, but passengers hope that that is actually the case. Listen. If things run smoothly, people do their jobs efficiently, then it's a great trip. Pack your patience. Come prepared. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I get home without a hitch. Airlines say the delays now could be on the federal government because the FAA is short about 3,000 air traffic controllers nationwide. That's what they say they would need to have optimal staffing levels. And we have seen air traffic control shortages cause delays even this week on Sunday and Monday. It was a problem in Denver. So now Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is insisting that will not be the case. And really extreme weather is the biggest cause of cancellations and delays. Erica, and we are hearing from the FAA that they are worried about thunderstorms today in Florida, also possibilities of more delays in Denver. Just check FlightAware, though. The cancellations in the U.S., very, very low. We're only talking about 60 nationwide right now and about 400 delays, although we'll see if any ground stops pop up later today, Erica. Yeah, we'll see what happens with those storms. Pete, appreciate it as always. Thanks. Uh, new this morning, a man has been arrested after he allegedly opened a plane door while that plane was still in the air. So you can see the air coming in there. It happened in South Korea. The Asiana Airlines plane was just about three minutes from landing. It was some 700 feet in the air when that door was opened. An official telling CNN a man in his 30s who was sitting at the emergency exit appeared to open the door. The plane did land at the airport. This was southeast of Seoul. Officials say 12 people suffered minor injuries from hyperventilation. Well, this morning, there is some new cautious optimism over the debt ceiling negotiations. Sources tell CNN the White House and Republican negotiators are moving closer to a deal to avoid potential default by next Thursday. That is the day that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says it is, quote, highly likely that the U.S. will not be able to pay all of its bills. We are told the agreement would raise the debt ceiling for two years while also capping federal spending on everything but the military and veterans. But to be crystal clear, there is no deal in place yet, and there are still several issues that need to be resolved. Happy to be joined now by the Deputy Treasury Secretary, Wally Adeyemo. It's good to have you, Wally. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for having me. So you just heard our reporting in the front page of the New York Times today. Their headline is that negotiators are, quote, closing on a deal. Is that accurate? Are they that close? What I can say is that we're making progress, and our goal is to make sure that we get a deal because default is unacceptable. The president has said it, and the speaker has said it, and we have to get something done before early June when the secretary has said that it's highly likely that we'll no longer have the resources to pay uh -huh. our bills. 
will the administration rule out work requirements on food stamps, SNAP and TANF, which is cash assistance, or are they open to that to get a deal done? So I'm not going to negotiate in public, but what I will say is the president's been very clear about what he values um, in terms of making sure that we protect the most vulnerable Americans. It's why he's been a supporter of the advanced child tax credit, which dramatically reduced child poverty. And he's going to continue to fight to make sure that we have policies in place that continue to protect the most vulnerable, but also yeah. while also growing the economy. But th this isn't a question about negotiating in public, nor is it a question about eliminating those benefits. It's a question of whether the administration is open to what the Republicans have proposed, some more work requirements for food stamps and cash assistance. Is that off the table or on the table for the White House? I'm not going to talk about what's on the table or off the table, but what I will talk about is the fact that the president is committed to making sure that we have a good faith negotiations with the Republicans to reach a deal because mm -hmm. the alternative is catastrophic for all Americans. People often think about the debt limit as something that only affects financial markets, but it also would mean that we aren't able to meet our commitments to those same recipients you just talked about, to our seniors, to our veterans, and we know that that's unacceptable. Is the administration okay with the debt ceiling increase that expires next year, or does it have to go into and through, really, 2024? What the president has made clear is that we are, we cannot do anything that does not increase the debt limit before we reach the point where we can no longer pay our bills. This is Congress's responsibility. Congress has done it 78 times, and he expects Congress to do it again in order to make sure that we can meet our commitments, not just to our creditors, but to our seniors, to our veterans, and to all the individuals who rely on the government every day. Fitch ratings yesterday came out and put the whole U.S. economy on ratings watch negative. And then that was two days ago. And then yesterday came out and did the same for mortgage-backed, uh, government-backed mortgage giants, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. We saw what happened in 2011 with S&P downgrading the credit of the United States. Do you believe with these warnings from Fitch that the United States is once again on a path to a credit rating downgrade, even if there is a last-minute deal? My hope is the answer to that question is no, but it's important to remember what happened in 2011. Even though we raised the debt limit um, at the last minute, the stock market went down by 17%. Right. And as you know well, 401ks owned by all Americans took a hit because of that. We're already seeing the cost of this debt limit impasse. A few weeks ago, we auctioned off debt for the U.S. government, and we paid $80 million more million than we would have but for the debt limit impasse. So the cost to the American people of yeah. the decision to create this manufactured crisis is real, and we need to end it as soon as possible. And if you lose a AAA credit rating, that cost goes even higher. Let me ask you, Wally, about prioritization, right? I, I know Treasury has said it's not feasible to prioritize payments in the case of a default. But what we learned from reporting after 2011 is that, in fact, Treasury and the Fed did have contingency plans. You guys, you weren't there then, but put together a plan to say, here's who we're going to pay. You advised agencies about what was going to happen in the case of default. I'm just wondering if you are giving guidance to agencies now. If we're to default, who gets paid first? So I was in government in 2011. I've served at the Treasury Department for about 10 years now. Were you in the and room in for those negotiations? That's, I wasn't in the that's room. what I was, I was referring not in the room to. For that, those yeah. negotiations. But what I can tell you is that as the, as the Deputy Secretary, I'm the Chief Operating Officer of the Department, and I'm in charge of making sure that we're able to make payments, take in money. And um, one thing that I think you know well is that, for example, the IRS, who brings in 95% of our payments, their computer systems are operating on cobalt 
a language that is no longer taught. They were built before we had the personal computer, before we had the ATM machine, and because we've underinvested in places like the IRS and our payment system, we're not in a position where we can make sure that we can make some of our payments, not all of our payments. The systems are built to make all of our payments, and the idea of us prioritization is truly default by another name. So are you saying there would be no prioritization? I guess I'm wondering if there is even a deal at the last minute, let's hope there is one, wouldn't Treasury have to be prepared to triage for at least several days? So Bobby, what I'm saying is that we don't have the capability to naturally triage and decide this payment is made and that payment is not because of the way that our systems are set up. And ultimately, the only thing that we can do is what Congress has done 78 other times and prevent default. Uh, the idea that we're having this conversation in the United States where we have the resources to pay our bills is something that we shouldn't be doing. And ultimately, as the person who's responsible for making sure the department runs, I can tell you that um, we do not, I don't have any confidence that we have the ability to be able to do a type of prioritization that will mean that all seniors, all veterans, right. all Americans get paid. Final question on the 14th Amendment. Uh, both the president and Secretary Yellen have said legally it would be very challenging to invoke, especially at this point. But if there is no deal as we approach next Thursday, will the administration attempt to invoke the 14th Amendment? So you've heard the president and the secretary, the 14th Amendment can't solve our challenges now. Ultimately, the only thing that can do that is Congress doing what it's done 78 other times, raising the debt limit. We don't have a plan B that allows us to meet the commitments that we've made to our creditors, to our seniors, to our veterans, to the American people. The only plan we have is the one that's worked for more than 200 years in this country, which is the United States of America needs to pay all of its bills and pay them on time. And Congress has the ability to do that, and the president is calling on them to act on that as quickly as possible. Is that a no? So the question was, uh, whether the United States would use the 14th Amendment. I think the president and the secretary have been very clear that that will not solve our problems now. So yes, that is a no. Thank you, Wally. I know you have a lot of work ahead. Good luck. Thank you. Appreciate it. Erica. There is new reporting from the Washington Post that Donald Trump's employees moved boxes at Mar-a-Lago the day before the FBI came looking for classified documents. Also, big changes could be coming to the notorious Hell Week for Navy SEALs after a candidate died. We'll tell you what was found on that investigation. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New details this morning in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. The Washington Post is reporting that workers for former President Trump moved boxes just before the FBI was set to retrieve classified information from his Florida home. So according to the report, evidence suggests those boxes were moved into a storage area on June 2nd. On June 3rd, uh, that's when the DOJ arrived at Mar-a-Lago. This was, of course, part of that grand jury subpoena. A couple of months later, the FBI conducted a court-approved search of the property. A source telling CNN at the time, this was in part because investigators developed evidence indicating there may still have been classified documents at the residence. Citing sources familiar with the matter, the Post writes that investigators see the timing of when the boxes were moved as a sign of possible obstruction. That's not all, though. The Post also reporting prosecutors have evidence that the former president kept classified documents in his office where they were visible and that he even showed them to others. So here's what the former president is saying. Uh, here's what he said when he was asked about it by Caitlin Collins. Did you ever show those classified documents to anyone? 
Not really. I would have the right to. By the way, they were declassified what do you mean not after. Really? Not, uh, not that I can think of. I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. But no, you why? Have to declassify Let me them. ask you. Let's bring in now CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honing. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, also a former federal and New Jersey state prosecutor. <laughs> so, Ellie, when we look at this, the Washington Post is reporting that the investigators have come to see this as timing as somewhat suspicious in terms of when things were moved and that it's a possible indication of obstruction based on what we all know publicly at this point. Do you see it that way? I do. I think there's several details in this new reporting that do go to the issue of obstruction and potential documents crimes. We prosecutors as a whole are obsessed with intent, right? Usually the easy part of a case is showing the physical movements. In this case, where were the documents? Where were they moved? That kind of thing. Not that it's easy, but it's easier. The harder part is getting into the person's head. Did the person know? And did the person have criminal intent? And even a detail like we just saw, the fact that Trump had these documents, classified documents, showed them to people. That establishes, A, he knew he had classified documents. B, he did something improper with them. You can't show classified documents to outsiders. And C, he essentially lied publicly to Caitlin. And prosecutors will use that. They'll say, look, if he thought there was nothing to hide, why would he get up in town hall and say, I don't think, not really, I never showed him to anyone, when in fact he did. So right there is just one important piece of intent evidence. The fact that this is coming out now, what does it tell you? Well, it tells me that prosecutors are in the latter stages of their investigation. I think they're sort of cleaning up the loose ends and trying to tie things together. Also, we have another indication, which is that Trump's team has asked for a meeting with the attorney general right. on this. Now, I don't think they get a meeting with Merrick Garland. I think the response from DOJ will be, the person who's running this is Jack Smith. If he wants to give you an audience, he will. And typically, as a prosecutor, you would. And typically, that would happen, though, towards the very end stages of an investigation. And that's not, that's not unheard of to ask for that meeting, either. Not only is it not unheard of, it is not at all uncommon. Right. It is very common in a case like this. You would expect there to be a meeting. What would happen is defense lawyers would come in and say, here are weaknesses in your case. Here's why you shouldn't charge our guy. Doesn't work often, but sometimes it can convince prosecutors. But they're not getting that information back necessarily. They may go in and say, here's why we think that you, this is really not worth your time. Yeah. You should probably stop, quibble your head. There, there's nothing here. It's not like prosecutors are going to look at them and say, oh, you know what? You're right. Or, <laughs> oh, I have this other thing, though, that, that is going to make me want to continue. They're not going to get much out of that. The standard prosecutor response is, thank you very much for your presentation. We'll take it under advisement. And that's it. They're looking at here two things. Um, mishandling of classified documents, but also obstruction. Yeah. And the real question here, especially with the dates, June 2nd, these boxes were moved. June 3rd, the FBI comes to search them. Right. We've also learned from this reporting in the New York Times, there was a dress rehearsal before the subpoena of how to deal with sensitive papers. The last time the grand jury met was May 5th, right? That was weeks ago. Yeah. Does that indicate anything to you? It tells me that prosecutors are not putting pencil to paper or, you know, using the keyboard. They're putting together, I think, their prosecution memo where you say, OK, here's all our evidence. Here's what we make of it. It is interesting that there's not been any witnesses for three weeks now, but I think they're getting into end phase. The last thing you would do when you're ready to seek an indictment, when you have the proper approvals, is then go back to the grand jury. And in the federal system, you can summarize. You can say, here's all the evidence you've seen. We now present a draft indictment for you to vote on. And Poppy, that evidence is so crucial as to intent. You know, we had uh, this past weekend, Tim Parlator was one of the yeah, Trump, yeah, Trump's yeah. former attorneys was on with Paula Reed. And he said, 
things get moved. This is a working place of business. That doesn't mean it's criminal. And what prosecutors are looking for is things like the timing. If there are movements happening the day before, then that's suspicious. But would they have known? But just to, yeah. But would they have known that they were coming on the third? Yes. 3rd? Yes. Because so this is important to understand. This is not the search warrant that was in August. That yeah. was two months later. But this in, was that first search. The subpoena, right? Yeah, and that's so right. DOJ said we're coming to town that's tomorrow, right. yeah, June third, right. to pick up the docs. Can I just note one thing? Um, the Post reporting does include a statement by John Irving, who's a lawyer representing one of the two unnamed employees who moved the boxes, and said that the worker did not know what was in them and was only trying to help the Trump valet. Walt Natua, who's getting a lot of attention right, right now as well. But intent, does it matter if the, the person who moved him didn't know what was in him? But it the person yeah. who, who asked for them to who be moved? Who asked for them to be moved. <laughs> That's the intent that matters. Exactly. Intent matters for everybody. It may well be that the person who physically moved the boxes didn't know what was in there, was just told, move that box from that room to that room. That person's not going to be criminally liable. The right. person who has a problem is the person who had asked. the boxes moved mm-hmm. for a reason. Yeah. Thank you, Ellie. All right, guys. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay, so we told you about this just amazing medical breakthrough. A man who had not walked in more than a decade, now walking naturally on his own thanks to new technology. We're going to be joined by the doctors who made it possible next. Plus, uh, we will tell you what prompted this reaction from graduating students at UMass Boston. A little feel good on your Friday. I love that. I don't even know what it was. I don't know. They... um, A man paralyzed in a motorbike accident more than a decade ago can walk again. That's right. Researchers in Switzerland developed technology that linked his brain and his spinal cord. And now the man says it works so well that he's had to learn how to walk naturally again. Our Meg Terrell reports. Hertjen Oskam was unable to take a single step after a spinal cord injury left him paralyzed more than a decade ago. But now he can stand up and walk even over tough terrain, and go upstairs. Technology is turning Oscom's thoughts into actions. Electrodes implanted over his brain collect signals from the region that controls movements. A computer analyzes them to predict how he wants to move, and then messages electrodes implanted in his spinal cord that allow him to make those movements. I only have to think about the movement, and I can start and stop While electrical stimulation has helped other paralyzed patients walk again, they've had to turn on implants that send a continuous signal to their spinal cord. Oscom's success is documented in a new scientific paper in the journal Nature. He was the first participant in a clinical trial for the technology, and researchers are hopeful about future possibilities. He says he can walk about 110 yards depending on the day, a little more than a football field. He can also stand without supporting himself with his hands for a few minutes and is looking forward to gaining even more function. Meg Terrell, CNN, reporting. I mean, impressive is only putting it mildly. We're joined now by two people directly involved in this medical breakthrough. G. Cortina is a neuroscientist and spinal cord specialist at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. And Dr. Jocelyn Block is a neuroscientist and neurosurgeon who implanted the device in Gurdjian Oskam. Um, I mean, we are all just fascinated by this story. G, as we look at this device, which is known as a brain-spine interface, I know you've been working on similar things. This is really building on some of your previous work. The fact that you figured out a way 
to basically get around the injured section here in his body and that there were even signs of neurological recovery. Were you expecting it to be quite this effective? I mean, certainly it has been a very long journey from the rats, the monkeys to the first test in human and finally this breakthrough. And you know, we are always hopeful as scientists that it will be effective. But on day one, seeing Gertsian being able to think about a movement and see the movement very natural and free, I mean, such a reward, of course. Can you speak, Jocelyn, to why it works and if it can work on many people? Or was this a unique situation? No, I don't think it's a unique situation. It's, he's the first, he's the test pilot, but I'm sure it's going to work in other patients. So it works because his brain is intact and the part of the spinal cord that is controlling leg movement is also intact. So we could put electrodes above the region of the brain that is controlling leg movement and above the region of the spinal cord that is controlling movements. And we could then link them. So in all the patients who have this intact regions, we could apply the same strategy. How, how widespread could this be in terms of how widespread could its usage be, G? How many, how many patients could potentially be impacted? And we are really at the very beginning. You know, in a sense, remember the pacemaker 50 years ago, people walking with a rack of stimulator next to them. It's a little bit what you see in the picture currently. But the key is Onward Medical is a company dedicated you know, to miniaturize everything, validate this technology so it can be really used by everyone who need it across the world in the future. Jocelyn, were you there when he walked for the first time? Did you get to see it? Yes, I was there. And I was really like And I must say that I did not, when I was there just for the first day when we were pre-programming the, the stimulator with the brain implant, I thought that he would only execute slight movements at the very beginning. But he was so fast that the very first day we asked him to stand up and to do a few steps and it worked. And all the team, G was not here, unfortunately. He thought it would happen later. And uh, so we were all in tears. Wow. I can only imagine. We can see your face light up as you're talking about it as well, and the smile we see on, on both of your faces. So this right now is, is really for lower body, as I understand it, not necessarily for someone who may have been paralyzed with, with something on their upper body, but could that, could it be amended perhaps to help some of those folks? Yes. It is certainly a strategy that we want now to apply. In the future, we've obtained the authorization to do it in cervical spinal cord injured patients, quadriplegic, who cannot move the arm. And we would exactly apply the same strategy, brain implant and cervical stimulation, in order to improve the hand movement. And we are pretty sure that a bit of improvement of hand movement would be a lot of gain in their future and in their ability to be independent. We know that Gurdjian can also walk short distances without the device if he uses crutches. How can that be possible? That seems like a miracle. This was a bit the unexpected discovery that this digital bridge, by linking the brain and the spinal cord with this like really active training, promoted the growth of new nerve connections. So today, Gersian can really have access to muscles that were previously paralyzed for so many years. And we have exposed this mechanism of basically the reorganization of the central nervous system. 
in preclinical models. So it's very exciting because it's not only a system that enables you to work, it's also a digital repair of the spinal cord. A digital repair of the spinal cord. It is remarkable. Uh, congratulations to you both. I think you're going to really um, change so many lives. We appreciate you joining us this morning. We just hope that Christopher Reeve will still be alive to see this. Oh, Thank you so much for the invitation. You're so right. We're thinking of him, of course, today. Thank you both. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This year's graduating class at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, got more than their diplomas yesterday. Commencement speaker and chief executive of Granite Telecommunications, Rob Hale, surprised the grads with some cold, hard cash. Take a look. Yeah. For us, the greatest joys we've had in our life have been the gift of giving. So each of you is getting $1,000 cash right now. You're getting 1,000. The first 500 is for you. It's a celebration of all you have done to be here today. Your leaders, celebrate. The second 500 is a gift for you to give to somebody or somebody else or another organization who could use it more than you. I think that may be my favorite part of that message. So each graduate, as you just heard there, who walked across the stage, they actually got two envelopes. So they had that $500 that was the gift, as you see. The other one labeled Give. Give. 2,500 undergraduates there. That gift amounted to $2.5 million. Forbes oh. estimates Hale has a $5 billion fortune. Doing great with it yeah. in that respect. I love that. I, and I love that message of paying it forward and helping someone else out. 100%. A nice feel-good Friday moment for you. Exactly. Now this, new developments in the federal investigation of New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez reports that investigators are looking into whether he received expensive gifts, including a Mercedes and a luxury apartment. Uh, the senator denying any wrongdoing. We do have more details on that ahead. Plus, a Navy SEAL candidate who died just hours after completing a brutal part of the training course known as Hell Week last year. A new Navy investigation has now been released. What it found and what changes it's led to. This morning, a new highly critical report details how the notoriously brutal Navy SEAL selection course known as Hell Week has left several candidates injured and one dead. Kyle Mullen died last year, you'll remember that, just eight hours after completing the grueling training and undergoing a medical check which found he suffered respiratory issues. Mullen's mother said the total lack of proper medical care means she will never see her son again. Listen. They had opportunities to save my son and he's dead because they didn't treat him. No mother should feel my pain that I have right now. My son is dead and never coming back. Natasha Bertrand joins us now. What does this report say about Hell Week and are things going to change? Yeah, Poppy, it's a really scathing report issue just about this, this, the basically inadequate medical screenings and totally uninformed medical staff that were overseeing Hell Week, which is a notoriously brutal uh, training uh, exercise that Navy SEAL candidates undergo. And essentially what the report said is that it was poorly organized, poorly integrated, and poorly led, the course was, and that it put candidates, quote, at significant risk. Now, there will be some potentially accountability 
for some of the people that were overseeing this course and that perhaps did not impose the kind of medical screenings and, uh, you know, just basic checks that would have been required perhaps to keep someone like Kyle Mullen alive. And those uh, uh, screenings and those potentially accountability will be taken against 10 people, but that's still under investigation. But look, Kyle Mullen died even after his symptoms were made aware to his uh, classmates and to other people who were training with him. He was coughing up orangish, kind of reddish blood, essentially, and his symptoms were not even uh, transmitted to uh, the Navy uh, Medical Center because the medical staff that were overseeing the course were just completely uninformed, according to this investigation. And while candidates going through Hell Week are normally given a form of penicillin uh, at the beginning of the course to reduce the chance of bacterial pneumonia, which is it appears as what Kyle Mullen had, he was not given that penicillin uh, because apparently there was a shortage of it uh, before uh, the course began. And so just a lot of questions here about why there was this inadequate screening, why this was inadequate, uh, you know, just basic medical care. And there will be some overhaul of the system. Candidates now are going to be uh, required to undergo medical screening every 24 hours. They will have to recover in a center uh, afterwards. And more importantly, there will be a competent uh, medical officer overseeing all of this throughout uh, the entire course, Poppy. And and aside from those changes, which sound sort of like 101, like they should have been doing that all along, has the Navy responded? Yeah, so we do have a, a statement here from Rear, Rear Admiral Keith Davids, who is the commander of uh, Naval Special Warfare Command. At the conclusion of the investigation, he said that our effectiveness as the Navy's Maritime Special Operations Force necessitates demanding high-risk training, but while rigorous and intensely demanding, our training must be conducted with an unwavering commitment to safety and methodical precision. So again, uh, just really emphasizing there that there needs to be some kind of risk management. These candidates can't just be left uh, alone if they are experiencing these symptoms, Poppy. Natasha, thank you for the reporting from the Pentagon this morning. A young cop in Chicago who dedicated her life to protecting the city she loved killed in uniform. Well, now her family, friends, and coworkers are remembering her as someone who went beyond the call of duty to help the people of her community. CNN's Ryan Young has her story. Nothing but God that keeps me going. I am heartbroken. With a beautiful smile and a bright future ahead, 24-year-old Chicago police officer Ariana Preston was considered a homegrown Chicago talent. In early May, she died wearing the uniform she loved. She loved Chicago. She loved everything about Chicago. She engaged with everybody. Her mom says Officer Preston was a dynamic woman who wanted to be the change her city needed. Loving, family-oriented, and just wanted to see good in everything and everybody. Me and my husband were very proud of her. I would say every time she walked out the door with the uniform, I was proud. Because it was something I said for her not to do, and she did it, and she loved it. On May 6, Officer Preston was returning home from her shift when four teenagers approached and tried to rob her while Preston was still in uniform. The young officer bravely fought back but was shot and killed. She was found lying in her front yard. Chicago officers Deshaun Lee and Jessica Scott thought of Ariana like a sister. What could we have done differently to, you know, make sure she got home safely? Officer Scott had been with her less than an hour before the attack happened. I just 
left you and 42 minutes later, you're gone. Like, I'll never talk to you again. I'll never see you again. You know, the impact that it has made for us as officers and more importantly, the impact of her family. You know, she's 24, so ambitious, so smart, so beautiful, so funny. Everything that you would want your daughter to be, your sister to be, she epitomized that. She was that and so much more. Hundreds gathered in Chicago last week for the fallen officer's funeral, a procession of fellow officers lining the streets, following her casket to the church. Since Ariana's tragic death, her mother, Dion Moon, hasn't stopped pushing to keep her daughter's name alive. Last week, walking in college graduation, Ariana was supposed to walk in, receiving her daughter's diploma from a master's program at Loyola University School of Law in Chicago. And the heartbroken mother made sure to show up at court to see the four teens captured and charged in connection with her daughter's murder. I stand before you guys today as a mother, a heartbroken mother, a mother that's full of anger, rage. That anger felt across the city of Chicago. We dream of raising black girls who see the world in all of its nuances and equip themselves to make a difference. And Ariana chose to change the world through wearing the badge and protecting and serving her beloved city. Chicago's police department having to move on now without one of their finest young officers protecting their city. In CPD, we say be the change. She was the change. She absolutely was. She did the thing that was different. Quite a life uh, to honor. Well, sources say negotiators are closer to an agreement on the debt ceiling. Just days to go now until that catastrophic default. We spoke with several business owners about how that would impact them. Also, a Republican-led committee in Texas is recommending articles of impeachment against the state's Republican Attorney General. Ken Paxson will tell you why ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, sources tell CNN the White House and Republican negotiators are moving closer to a deal to avoid potential default by next Thursday. But there's a lot of work to be done. Time is running low. Concern is growing, especially among some business owners, many of whom will be directly affected. I talked to them. And joining us now, four small business owners to talk about how a potential default would affect them personally, their employees, what it means for them writ large. Rosemary Swork is the founder of President Direct Steel and Construction, which builds about a dozen government buildings a year. Andrea Carnes is vice president of sales and marketing at Carnes Quality Foods, a third generation family owned grocery store chain in Pennsylvania. Brendan McCluskey is the owner of Trident Builders, a construction firm in Baltimore. About 60 percent of their businesses business is federal contracts. And also joining us is Jonathan Graff with Graff Consulting Behavioral Specialist. His income mostly comes from Medicaid for his work with children and adults in crisis. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. What happens if we default on June 1st? Let's say there is a government shutdown for our federal projects, just for instance, um, that would take the federal government representatives off the project, which would shut down our project. Then the decision is how long, and then we, we can't submit for payment, we can't receive payment. So this isn't about a government shutdown, but this is about 
about if we default and what that means for the economy. How would that affect your business, Rosemary? So we're, if we don't have receivables coming in and our projects aren't moving forward, how do we move forward with that project? But it also has, much to your point, a lot of ancillary issues, increased interest rates, right? So on our private side, it's we've already seen a pullback in the quality and quality, quality of leads because of the rising interest rates. An additional rise in interest rates even pulls it back that much more. Um, the ability to get loans, um, the lines of credits tightening up, it has huge yeah. amplifications on businesses. Brendan, what about you? Because you just your company just began work, I believe, in the last week or so on a federal building in Baltimore. That's been in the works since last year. What happens to a project like that if we default? Um, I don't know. And, you know, I, I feel as if I don't know what's going to happen. And that's where I really get frustrated with this general situation is that, you know, we're just introducing an awful lot of uncertainty here. You know, we've been dealing with a pandemic. We've been dealing with worker shortages. We've been dealing with supply chain issues. We're now dealing with inflation. All right. And then rising interest rates and, and like reduced access to capital. Why are we introducing the potential of a default on top of all that? What I would probably do is just kind of like grin and bear it and build the project out and then hope to get paid at some point. Otherwise, you know, I've got to kind of carry that burden in terms of like acting my, my savings. So a default now, it would basically probably not hurt me as much right now, but it would kill my project pipeline and my ability going into 24 and even 25. So I just look at this entire episode as being frankly, grossly irresponsible and dangerous. Andrea, you are a third generation grocery shop owner. You've got 1,200 employees and the people you service is everyone. People who would be directly impacted in terms of government payments if we have a default. Can you just speak to that, how you're preparing for that? Certainly. What you said is 100% correct. We service everyone in the community. So we have SNAP recipients, we have veterans, we have individuals on Social Security, we have federal employees. Um, In looking at how that would affect us as a retailer and how it will affect the community, you know, we're not just talking about those drug shoppers. Because when they spend less, we have less ability to purchase from the local farmers. We have less ability to purchase from our wholesaler. So that ripple effect really stretches out. So many folks are already struggling to fill their pantry, fill their refrigerator, their freezer. So that uncertainty, that unknown definitely starts to creep into their everyday thoughts and wondering what's going to happen, when's it going to happen, and how's it going to impact me? Jonathan, you're a behavioral specialist. So a lot of your income, as I understand it, right, is tied to Medicaid. And what would a default mean for you guys? Well, yes, I mean, that. I'd like to say exactly what has been said uh, by the others on this panel, and that is the uncertainty and the unknown. And in human service, the entire system really is built on Medicaid services. So there is no plan B. And in my job, I support people who are in crisis who have intellectual and developmental disabilities. So this unknown piece, uh, if it affects Medicaid, if there are deep cuts, if the, the faucet turns off, our entire system just stops. And so small business owners like myself, yes, we would absolutely lose our jobs because I'm a Medicaid provider, so I bill Medicaid mm. because the folks who need these services most can't afford them to private pay. So they require uh, services. And, it, and so yes, it impacts us as small businesses. It also impacts the folks that we support because they pay their room and board with Medicaid. And so it's gonna 
not just disrupt their lives, but it's catastrophic for them as well. Very quickly, if you each could, what is your message to Washington? They have a week left to get this done, Rosemary. Right. I, I think it would be, you know, we've already battled the worst economic conditions my generation has ever known. The last thing we need is more economic uncertainty. Andrea? Certainly. So when you look at the government, their job at the end of the day is to protect the, protect the citizens of the United States. That's what I'm asking them to do. You know, we all work with individuals that we don't always see eye to eye with. That being said, push those, push those items aside and find a resolution to avoid this situation. Brendan? Politicians often talk about how small businesses is the bedrock of the national economy. And I think it's just quite dangerous, irresponsible, and it doesn't reflect well upon America. Jonathan, finally, your message to Washington. Supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities isn't a partisan issue. We help the most vulnerable folks in society. So uh, I'm hoping that Washington thinks about their own family members and their own community and realize that, you know what, folks aren't pawns. Hopefully Congress is listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you for the platform. That's who I really care about hearing from. I mean, the lawmakers make the decisions. We care about that. But, like, this is who it's affecting when we don't have a deal. And I think on so many levels, right, it's this current issue that we're dealing with. But across the board, it makes you wonder what we hear from people all the time when we talk to them. Are those in Washington really hearing them? Well, hopefully they're watching. Let's hope so. Okay. (laughs) The final hour of CNN This Morning continues right now. Well, good morning. Happy Friday, everyone. Maybe a long weekend for you. My husband told me, he's like, I don't have work today. I was like, what? Well, that must what? be nice. What? what? Must? I was like, you can go to the grocery <laughs> store. You can hem my pants, go to the dry cleaner. Let's see how much happens. Oh, he does tailoring? No, oh. I want him to. <laughs> um, I'm so happy to have my friend Erica Hill here with me today and next week. Here's what we are watching this morning. Sources do tell CNN the White House and Republican negotiators are moving closer to a deal on the debt limit. But a growing number of House Republicans and Democrats are warning they might not support the agreement even if they reach one. Ooh, airlines, meantime, facing a critical stress test this Memorial Day weekend. AAA expects air travel to be busier than it's been in nearly 20 years. Also, the Washington Post with quite an exclusive report this morning that workers at Mar-a-Lago moved boxes a day before the FBI came to pick up classified documents last year, how that evidence could determine potential obstruction. And one of the most powerful Republicans in the state of Texas is now facing possible impeachment by his fellow Republicans. A GOP-led committee of state lawmakers wants Attorney General Ken Paxton removed for alleged bribery, fraud, and abuse of public trust. And big basketball headline for you this morning. The Boston Celtics staying alive with a dominant Game 5 win against the Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. And the LSU women's basketball champs heading to the White House today. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. But we begin with your hopefully long holiday weekend, Memorial Day travel. Airports are going to be very busy, actually the busiest in nearly two decades as America bounces back from the pandemic. That is according to AAA. Take a live look at O'Hare in Chicago. Demand for flights has been skyrocketing. AAA predicts nearly three and a half million people will fly just this weekend. That's, of course, an increase from last year. It's also up from 2019 before COVID struck. Pete Muntean joins us near the nation's capital at Reagan this morning. Good morning. How's it looking? 
you know, a huge test for airlines, Poppy. In fact, the TSA says that just yesterday, we set a pandemic era air travel record, screening 2.66 million people at airports nationwide, besting the record set just past Friday. You know, this is so interesting because last Memorial Day really kicked off this summer of meltdowns for airlines. Airlines insist this time around they are ready, and we will see if that is the case this weekend. It is the start of a summer of tests for air travel, with the Transportation Security Administration planning to screen 10 million passengers between Thursday and Monday. The world's busiest airport in Atlanta will be even busier than normal, with officials there anticipating 300,000 passengers a day. Many of us are still trying to make up for the time we lost during the pandemic. From TSA's perspective, we are ready. We are up over, finally over, pre-pandemic levels. Delta Airlines says holiday weekend ticket sales are up 17% from last year. American Airlines says it alone will serve 2.9 million passengers. United Airlines says this will be the busiest Memorial Day holiday in more than a decade. This weekend will be a test of the system. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says flight cancellations are down after last summer's repeated meltdowns. Airlines insist they are right-sized, operating fewer flights on larger airplanes, and right-staffed. A CNN analysis shows the industry has hired nearly 48,000 new workers in the last year. We're doing everything we can to uh, press airlines to deliver that good service. And if there is an issue, we have your back. Though airlines worry it's the federal government that could cause delays. Two in 10 air traffic controller jobs are empty. That's 3,000 positions nationwide. This week, back-to-back -back staffing issues in Denver forced the FAA to slow flights. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby calls air traffic control shortages his number one concern. That doesn't just impact those flights, that bleeds over to the whole system for the rest of the day. For now, the FAA has opened up 169 new, more efficient flight routes up and down the East Coast even limiting space launches to off-peak times. For passengers, all that matters is getting where they want to go, knowing one snag could slow the start of summer. If things run smoothly, people do their jobs efficiently, then it's a great trip. Pack your patience, come prepared. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I get home without a hitch. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg underscores the top driver of delays is really extreme weather, and the FAA is warning today that there could be thunderstorms in Florida, a huge destination, and that ground stops could be possible as the day goes on. The good news right now, no ground stops nationwide at all. Just tech flight aware, seen about 600 flight delays so far today, only about 68 cancellations. Just heard from somebody who went through this line here at TSA, only took her about 11 minutes to get through pre-check, so pretty smooth pretty good. so far, Poppy. Pretty good. We'll take it. Thanks, Pete. <laughs> Two people working for former President Donald Trump moved boxes of papers at his Mar-a-Lago estate the day before FBI agents came to collect classified documents last year. That's according to the Washington Post, which cites people familiar with the matter. The Post reporting investigators have come to view the timing as suspicious and an indication of possible obstruction. And adds that last May, before Trump even received a subpoena for the classified documents, he and his team held a dress rehearsal for moving papers that he didn't want to hand over to the feds. Now, the sources also say prosecutors have evidence that Trump left some classified documents out in the open 
and even showed them to people. Those new details show a broader timeline and possible extent of obstruction than previously reported. The former president, for his part, has denied any wrongdoing and claims he declassified the documents at Mar-a-Lago simply by removing them from the White House. Also this, a judge in Washington has sentenced the founder of the far-right group, the Oath Keepers, to 18 years in prison for leading that attack on the Capitol. This is the longest sentence yet for a January 6th defendant, the first handed down for that very high charge of seditious conspiracy. Prosecutors argued that Stuart Rhodes spent weeks coordinating efforts to overturn the 2020 election. They say his plotting to lead his followers to the Capitol the judge said Rhodes showed no remorse and before sentencing told him this, quote, I dare say, Mr. Rhodes, and I have never said this to anyone I have sentenced, you pose an ongoing threat and peril to our democracy and the fabric of this country. Sources tell CNN White House and Republican negotiators are moving closer this morning to a deal on raising the debt limit. But, and this is an important but, the calendar, of course, is not in their favor. Just six days left to prevent a potentially catastrophic default that could crash the economy. And a growing number of House lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are warning they may not vote for the deal, even if there is one. 35 hardline Republicans have sent additional demands to Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Those demands include scrapping funding for a new FBI headquarters. And several House Democrats, meantime, are warning the White House they will not support the agreement if it includes things like stricter work requirements for food stamps, Medicaid, and other benefits for low-income Americans. Christine Romans is here to break down just how dangerous the situation is for our economy right now. Uh, Lauren Fox is on Capitol Hill. Lauren, let's begin with you. Where do things stand this morning in terms of negotiations? any movement. Well, the negotiations right now are basically moving closer to where they believe they could get an agreement. But like you noted, the outstanding issues here are many. One of them, a key issue that came up last night, was this question about work requirements. Republicans still pushing very hard to include those requirements on programs like Medicaid, on programs like food stamps and other social safety net programs. There's also still a lot of discussion around how much money the federal government is going to spend over the next several years. That is a critical piece of this agreement. As we have said over and over again, there is a question of whether or not there's going to be less spending next year than there currently is. They believe that they are moving closer in the CAPS agreement, but there still is no hard agreement at this time. We should note that they believe that they could raise the debt ceiling for potentially two years as part of any agreement. But as you noted, there is still a lot of heartburn from both conservatives and progressives who are warning that they have concerns about the shape of the deal that is coming together behind closed doors. Part of this issue is that these negotiators have been working very quietly, not communicating broadly with their conference because of the sensitivity of these talks. But that's starting to create the sense that people don't know what is coming together. People don't know if they're going to be comfortable voting for it. And the reality is, even if they get a deal, you still have to have 218 votes coming out of the House of Representatives. Likely that's going to come from the middle of the Republican conference, from the middle of the Democratic caucus. It's probably not going to come from progressives and hardline conservatives. But you still have to quell any major rebellion that might be forming right now because people just don't feel like they have a good sense of what's going to be in this deal. Erica? Lauren, appreciate it. So, Christine, when we look at where we stand in this moment on this Friday morning yeah. with that clock ticking, there are very serious implications here that loom. 
And, and signs of progress. And I think that's important because when you look at how markets are reacting, markets are saying failure is not an option, that there cannot be a, a debt default and they've got to get to yes somehow. And one of the ways it looks like they might get to yes is the White House may be offering this olive branch to Republicans to, to redirect $10 billion of that new IRS funding that was in the Inflation Reduction Act redirect that to cover some of the places where there are, are cuts in the budget for Democrats' favorite uh, proposals. So that could be something that maybe would give Kevin McCarthy something he can take back to his mm-hmm. to his mm-hmm. caucus, but at the same time, it could really anger <laughs> Democrats. So you're seeing some movement, and I think that's what's really important in terms of the, the state of play of this. But when I also see movement in the Treasury cash balance, yesterday it was $76.5 billion in the bank account we used to pay the bills. Today it's fallen below um, $50 billion. And we know that at the beginning of the month we have uh, billions and billions of dollars that have to be uh, going out the door every day. June 15th, quarterly tax receipts come in, so there will be an infusion of cash then. But we are limping along until then, unless they get this done. Lauren, back to you on Capitol Hill. One of the potential off-ramps here, maybe a break-glass measure, would be the president trying to uh, invoke the 14th Amendment and basically saying the, the, the Constitution allows me to unilaterally raise the debt ceiling because we cannot default. But the administration just seemed to take that completely off the table this morning in this interview we just did with the Deputy Treasury Secretary. Listen. Final question on the 14th Amendment. Uh, Both the president and Secretary Yellen have said legally it would be very challenging to invoke, especially at this point. But if there is no deal as we approach next Thursday, will the administration attempt to invoke the 14th Amendment? So you've heard the president and the secretary. The 14th Amendment can't solve our challenges now. Ultimately, the only thing that can do that is Congress doing what it's done 78 other times, raising the debt limit. We don't have a plan B that allows us to meet the commitments that we've made to our creditors, to our seniors, to our veterans, to the American people. The only plan we have is the one that's worked for more than 200 years in this country, which is the United States of America needs to pay all of its bills and pay them on time. And Congress has the ability to do that, and the president is calling on them to act on that as quickly as possible. Is that a no? So the question was, Uh, whether the United States would use the 14th Amendment. I think the president and the secretary have been very clear that that will not solve our problems now. So, yes, that is a no. I don't think we've heard them say it that definitively before. Have have we, Lauren? And if that's a no, then there's no break glass plan B. That's exactly right, Poppy. You know, I think this is sending a message to some of the Democrats, some of the progressives on Capitol Hill who have been urging the administration to consider using the 14th Amendment because, in part, they don't like the contours of the deal they feel like is starting to come together in these negotiations. They have been warning very clearly to the White House that they are not going to be compelled to vote for just any deal that they reach. So to me, that was really sending a clear message to Democrats The only option right now is what we are negotiating in the room. That is the only way we are getting out of this debt ceiling crisis that could come and befall this country in less than a week at this point, Poppy. Final thoughts to our chief business correspondent who always makes us feel better about it. I would say the other break last moment would be a TARP-like event. Uh, Remember the bank bailout that didn't get passed, stock market tanked, they turned around, they went back to work, and then they passed a bank bailout. I'm not predicting that could happen, but that would be something that you would see that maybe if markets forced them back to the table to do either a clean uh, a clean increase or an increase along with maybe a, a commission, you know, to talk about the long-term drivers of our debt, that would be another kind of break glass moment, I think. Okay. 
Interesting. We'll be watching. Christine Lauren, appreciate it. Thank you both. Now this, this morning, a Texas House committee is unanimously recommending that State Attorney General Ken Paxson be impeached or removed from, and removed from office. This panel has been investigating allegations that Paxson abused his office to benefit a multi-millionaire donor. Paxson has denied any wrongdoing. Russell Flores has been following it. It's really interesting because it's so rare to have articles of impeachment invoked in this way. But this is Republicans going after the Republican AG in the state of Texas. You know, you're absolutely right. And this is an adoption of 20 articles of impeachment that include constitutional bribery, dereliction of duty, um, disregard of official duty, misapplication of public resources. I mean, the list goes on and on. And these articles were adopted just one day after an explosive and stunning open hearing before this Texas House committee made up of three Republicans and two Democrats that described years-long alleged wrongdoing by the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton to help a donor in relation to a whistleblower lawsuit that Ken Paxton settled back in February for $3.3 million, obligating the Texas taxpayer, not Paxton, to pay those $3.3 million. Look, it's that chunk of money. That's why we're here. That's why this investigation was unleashed, because the Texas House Speaker, also a Republican, has maintained that the Texas taxpayer should not be responsible for paying those $3.3 million without a proper investigation. Well, the result of that investigation are the articles, is the articles of impeachment. Now, part of what this body has found is the following. Take a listen. An inquiry found evidence of a dereliction of duty and of a lack of transparency. Specifically, a failure to disclose information that General Paxton had a duty to disclose. <coughs> the Texas Ethics Commission records established that General Paxton had failed to report his connection to boards and his receipt of various gifts. Now, Ken Paxton firing back, saying that all of this can be disproven, said in a statement in part, quote, Four liberal lawyers put forward a report to the House General Investigating Committee based on hearsay and gossip, parroting long disproven claims. It goes on to say this process provided no opportunity for rebuttal or due process. They even refused to allow a senior attorney for my office to provide the facts. The articles of impeachment are now House Resolution 2377. It has to go before the full House of Representatives. A simple majority will move this forward to impeachment court in the Senate. And Poppy, here's a really interesting uh, part of all of this. Angela Paxton is a senator in the state of Texas. If that last name sounds familiar, you're probably thinking the same. She is Ken Paxton's Quite. wife. It is going to be very interesting how that is handled. Wow. Yeah. Poppy. I didn't know that. Rose Flores, thank you for the reporting. Happening overnight, Russian strikes on a medical facility in Ukraine as a counteroffensive begins to take shape. And President Biden nominating Air Force General Charles Q. Brown to be the next Joint Chiefs Chairman. But one Republican senator is holding up his nomination and the nomination of more than 200 others. We will ask the State Department about all of that next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Overnight, a series of drone and missile strikes reported across Ukraine, including in the capital region of Kyiv, 
President Zelensky says a medical facility was hit in the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro. At least two people were killed, more than a dozen injured. And military officials say they downed most of Russia's 17 cruise missiles and 31 attack drones. Meanwhile, in Russia, a large explosion was heard overnight in the city of Krasnodar, and a building was damaged there. The governor of Belgorod is also reporting shelling. He says four homes were damaged. There were no casualties reported yet. President Joe Biden is nominating Air Force General Charles Q. Brown to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. CQ is a fearless leader and an unyielding patriot. I know I'll be able to rely on his advice as a military strategist and as a leader of military innovation, dedicated to keeping our armed forces the best in the world. If confirmed, this would be the first time that both of the Defense Department's top positions, the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, would be held by black Americans. Brown's confirmation, however, is now joining several others, hundreds actually, of military promotions and nominations, which are being held up by one senator, Alabama Republican Tommy Tuberville, who's protesting a memo Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin sent in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which said the military would provide leave and reimburse transportation costs for travel, for troops and their families to receive reproductive health care, including abortions. We've had an abortion policy, but they, they just went around Congress, said, hey, we're going to do this on our own. Uh, that's not how you do things in Washington, D.C. It's not, not how they're going to do things with, with me, with the ability to, to put a block and put holes on their nominees. And I told them that beforehand, if you do this, I'm going to block them. So they were, they were warned uh, in advance, but they did it anyway. And and uh, but they could care less. They, they, they're trying to run, uh, you know, this country from the White House without going through Congress. And I'm not going to put up with it. Secretary Austin has said he believes they are on very firm legal ground. Joining us now to discuss the nomination and more, Department of Defense Deputy Spokesperson Sabrina Singh. Good to see you this morning. As we look at where things stand, a, a Senator Tupperville's spokesperson said he does this whole does apply to General Brown. Um, he wrote this week in an op-ed to The Washington Times, quote, no job is going unfilled. The military keeps officers in place until the replacements are confirmed. All these jobs are being done. He says, not a problem. People will just keep doing what they will be doing while we wait. Can the military continue to operate in that manner? Well, thanks, Erica, so much for having me this morning. Um, I'm, unfortunately, I think Senator Tuberville just has a fundamental um, misunderstanding of how the military works. We need our general and flag officers that are Senate confirmed in these positions. We can't just have our um, other officers fill in for roles in an acting position indefinitely. Um, between now and the end of the year, we have 650 general and flag officers up for Senate confirmation that Senator Tuberville has put a, a hold on, including the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was nominated yesterday by the president, General uh, C.Q. Brown. And so these do have an impact on our readiness and our national security. When we don't have a, a person that has been Senate confirmed in these positions, that sends a message to our adversaries and to our allies all across the world and here in the department as well. What is that message specifically? Well, again, when you don't have uh, our confirmed folks in these positions, you don't have a, um, someone in those roles that can act that can act as the liaison with our allies across the world um, and our partners across the world. We are in the middle of uh, the Ukrainian war right now. We're working to arm the Ukrainians with whatever it takes and whatever we can do um, in their fight against Russia. At the same time, uh, Congress is uh, well aware that we have the pacing challenge of China to continue to meet every day. This is something that 
these general and flag officers around the world, whether it's our 7th and 5th Fleet commanders to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, are going to have to focus on. And when you don't have someone in that permanent position leading the department, making those decisions, that does have an impact not only on our readiness, but our national security. It plays right into the hands of our adversaries that there is discord here in Washington and here in this building. We need to present a united front all across the world. We have the most capable, ready fighting force all in the world. And um, sowing discord here in the department, that doesn't help our message um, uh, abroad with our allies and partners. It's interesting, Senator McConnell uh, telling reporters recently he does not support putting a hold on military nominations, uh, comments which were dismissed by Senator Tuberville. We'll continue to watch that situation. You brought up the war in Ukraine. Uh, talking about uh, what is and isn't being done there in terms of um, how they're being armed. For months, we've heard the Biden administration say no. When it comes to F-16s in Ukraine, NATO allies now set to provide them. What does this do for U.S. thinking? Well, again, yesterday, the secretary held the 12th Ukraine defense contact group here where he convened allies and partner nations. Um, over 50 participated in that. And that group is really there to help arm Ukraine with what it needs in this unprovoked war started by Russia. Um, at the beginning of the war, we were giving surging uh, supplies and capabilities to Ukraine that started with stingers and javelins. Over time, that started, uh, we need, we as the battlefield changed, we, need, we knew that we needed to adjust our um, capabilities that we were providing. So you saw us provide tanks and HIMARS. Um, and now as the battle continues, um, we're looking to provide longer uh, uh, term capabilities, which includes training for F-16s. Mm -hmm. um, the United States supports that. The Netherlands and Denmark have agreed to be the leaders in that training. Um, and so the U.S. is supportive of that. Um, but again, the, the F-16s are not something that the Ukrainians will be able to use as they launch their counteroffensive. This is a long-term commitment. Um, as we know that they will need a, a strong, capable air force um, to continue to defend uh, not just their airspace, but their country in the long term. And to your point of listening to what they need, we've been hearing this is what they see as a need from the very beginning. As you point out, the training will happen. I do also just want to get your, uh, your take. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, of course, is now a candidate for president, uh, was asked about the military. He's arguing it's too, quote, woke, a term which has come to signify, I'm not quite sure what these days, the way that it's thrown around. But he talks specifically about what he sees in terms of the direction of the U.S. military under President Biden. Take a listen. Well, first, I think what we need to do as a veteran is recognize that our, our military uh, has become politicized. Uh, you talk about gender ideology. You talk about things like global warming that they're somehow concerned. And that's not the military that I served in. He says he's seen a change uh, since President Biden took office. How does the Department of Defense respond to that characterization? Well, labels like that certainly further polarize um, our political environment and the military, which is a nonpartisan entity. I am proud to work here every day with men and women in uniform and our civilians who are laser focused on the task at hand that the secretary has set out, for, that the president has set out to defend the homeland, uh, to take care of our people, to strengthen our partners and ally uh, relationships all across the world. That is what the military is focused on every day. We're not focused on labels being thrown at us um, uh, from others across the aisle. We are focused on the mission, which is to continue to defend the homeland and to make sure that we remain the most combat-capable, ready military that the world has ever seen. And so, uh, again, that, that's the focus that this building has, that the men and women that I work with every day um, honor, and uh, we're going to keep doing that every day. Sabrina Singh, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Erica.
Ahead for us, police say a 22-year-old woman from Connecticut lost her leg in a shark attack. This happened in the Turks and Caicos, so we have a, an update on her condition, but also some warnings as people head out to the oceans. An American woman is in serious condition this morning after reportedly losing her leg in a shark attack. This happened when she was snorkeling Wednesday in the Turks and Caicos. It is the latest in a string of shark attacks we've seen in the past week or so. Joining us from Rockway Beach right here in New York is our Miguel Marquez, who has not yet seen a shark yet, thank goodness. But people are a little nervous along the coast, right? I think people are paying attention and certainly governments across uh, everywhere uh, from the, from Florida all the way north uh, into Massachusetts are, are telling people beach season has begun, summer has begun. Keep in mind, this is sharks front yard and backyard that they're playing in here in the Rockaways. You can see this is pretty typical. Lots of surfers out here. It's low tide now, so they're getting out there. We have seen some dolphins already this morning, but no sharks. That woman in the Turks and Caicos has really raised alarms and concerns because it was such a bad injury that shark took off one one of her legs. These were people who were two people who were on a private uh, uh, boat that they were snorkeling out beyond the reef and a, a shark they say may have mistaken her for a prey, but it's not very clear because it took off her leg. So it really, really bit in. Uh, there's been a couple of other high profile shark uh, attacks in the area. There was one in New Jersey. They believe it was a shark attack. A young woman was surfing and she was bit on the foot. And then in Florida, there was a young woman who was just sitting in the, the, the water, the low water on the beach, and a shark bit her in the stomach and in the arm. And she was badly injured. Both of them, all of them, amazingly, are expected to, uh, to survive. The woman in the Turks and Caicos was darn lucky that that boat was there and they were able to get her to a medical attention almost immediately. So while she's in serious conditions, her, her, her prospects look quite good. Here in New York, they are going to increase the number of drones and boats across beaches in New York this summer to make sure that if they see a shark, they can get everybody out and keep swimmers and beachgoers safe. Back to you all. Thank goodness. I'm glad they're going to be okay, but still a lot of scares all in just a few weeks. Miguel, yeah. thanks very much. Appreciate it. Erica. This morning, a California man is free from prison after serving 33 years for a crime prosecutors now say he did not commit. Daniel Saldana was convicted in 1990 of trying to murder six high school students. He was one of three men charged, and he was sentenced to 45 years to life. The district attorney's office, however, began investigating after learning in February that another convicted attacker told authorities Saldana was not involved. Well, today, as you can imagine, Saldana says he's grateful to be free. I just knew that one day this was going to come. I'm just so grateful. <laughs> I just thank God, Jesus. Saldana, who was working in construction at the time of the shooting, says he has no idea why he had been linked to that crime. Well, coming up, a little treat for you. Comedian Sebastian Maniscalco, known for his hilarious takes on family life, is taking his relationship with his own father to the big screen, starring alongside Robert De Niro. Maniscalco always finds a way to feed his family. My father has an old Italian... Sebastian Maniscalco joins us next. One important thing, it's everything. I can't believe Father's Day is now just a couple of weeks away, and though it's never too early to start thinking about what would maybe put a smile on your dad's face, it could be especially challenging if your father is, for example, Salvo, 
a Sicilian American played by Robert De Niro in the new film about my father. Oh my oh. God. Ellie Belly. You know, looking back at this, my dad had to be overwhelmed. Family's a little hands, yeah? It's called love and affection, Dad. Unlike you, when you met me at the delivery room, you chose to shake my hand. What else was I supposed to do? We just met. <sighs> what? Guys, come on. I want you to meet Sebastian's father. <sighs> hey, Sebastian. Hi. Thank nice you. to see you. Oh, Pleasure. Nice welcome. Sebastian, so good to see you. And you must be the charming Salvo. So nice to finally meet you in person, Tigger. It's just last week I was checking out your highlights on TV. Oh, the CNN or the Fox ones? No, no, the, the blonde ones. Your hair, if I could say, is just like a block of marble. I'm gonna sink my tools into it. Sorry, I'm gonna hit about My Father is out today nationwide. Comedian and actor Sebastian Mascalco wrote the film and stars in it and joins us now. Great to have you with us. So uh, we see Salvo there, played by Robert De Niro, is actually based on your dad, Salvo, also a hairdresser. I'm curious, did this film actually put a smile on your dad's face? Oh, yeah. Uh, my father didn't really believe that De Niro was going to play him in this. You know, when I told him, he's like, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. And then my dad got a phone call from Bob uh, and he wanted to hang out with him, you know, for a weekend so he could do script analysis with my dad. So my dad flew down to Oklahoma and was teaching Robert De Niro how to, you know, speak Italian. And I was like, this is something that I never thought would be in, 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 in the pipeline. I mean, I had De Niro posters on my wall growing up and here he is, my dad teaching him how to, how to be him. And, and my dad asking me, am I getting paid for this? I'm like, what? <laughs> Wait, are you saying your dad didn't get paid for that? You didn't pay him? Well, I mean, I, no, nobody paid him. <laughs> I, I had to take it out of my till. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it was, it's been fun. I mean, it's been a, a wild ride. My, my parents, my mother and my father and, uh, are able to, you know, I'm, I'm just happy they're alive. So they're, you know, sharing this experience with me because, uh, we're such a tight family and, uh, for, for me to share this with them is a big moment. It's it's pretty great, I have to say. The film is the film is super fun. Uh, for people who, I want to give people who should be familiar with you at home, but if they're not, just a sense, too, of, you know, a lot of this for people who are familiar with your comedy will feel a little bit familiar because so much of what you talk about is about your upbringing, is about your own Sicilian father. So I just want to play a little bit of those moments. The world doesn't match my upbringing, okay? I'm here to tell you that. I grew up with an immigrant family. My father's Sicilian, my mother's Italian. I gotta, I gotta clarify that, all right? Half Sicilian, half Italian. But if you talk to my father, you're Sicilian, you're Sicilian. Okay, now, relax. There's so much in this, it's, it's about the culture class when families meet, which is relatable for a lot of couples, a lot of families. Um, but as you were writing this, you've got your Sicilian father, right, that this is based on, and this very blue blood, very waspy family on the other side. How close is that to your real life? It's right out of my real life. Uh, my wife comes from a very um, you know, wealthy family, and uh, we go there every summer to spend uh, you know, a week over 4th of July uh, at her you know, country club uh, environment. I mean, sweet people, nice people, but completely different than how I grew up. Um, 
you know, I often make fun of uh, my wife's parents. That's all they do is travel. They're bouncing around from city to city to country to country. And growing up, we went on one vacation a year, you know, and, and we left when we ran out of money, you know, like, uh, we went to Disneyland and in the middle of Disneyland, my father's like, all right, wrap it up. And I'm like, wrap it up. Aren't we going to SeaWorld? And he's like, I got no more money. Get in the car. We're going home. So I think those two, you know, two different ways of living, although, you know, fantastic in their own right. But once they come together, I think it makes for a, an unbelievable uh, film and, and, and conflict and comedy. When we see these families, I think it's also in many ways, so correct me if I'm wrong, it felt like a love letter too, to your dad um, and, and maybe even to your in-laws. Yeah, I think it, it definitely is. You know, the fact that I was able to give my father a movie, it's not something every kid gets a chance to do. And, uh, you know, my father is, uh, is my toughest critic and my biggest fan at the same time, you know, coming from an immigrant family, Work was really stressed in our house. It was like, no one's ever gonna give you nothing. You gotta work for every, every uh, piece of food that you get. You know, he's been on my back for 49 years. This guy's relentless. You know, he, uh, he's still at my shows going, you know, you got any new material? Let's, <laughs> let, you know, let's, let's start writing some new stuff. You know, people wanna see new stuff. So it's nice to kind of have that voice on my shoulder. Although annoying at times, uh, sometimes I need it. I think we all talk about as we get older and we look at our own kids and we end up, we have these moments where you think, oh my God, I'm doing exactly what my parents did. Are you Salvo in real life with your own kids? There's hints of it. You know, I think what we do as parents, we take from what our parents did to us and we cherry pick, you know, oh, like I like the fact that my, my father gave me chores growing up. I was cutting the lawn, washing the car, vacuuming the living room. And now I got my three-year-old making his bed, cleaning his plate. You know, I want to instill that type of work ethic my father instilled in me. So the way my father delivers a message to me, his criticisms are very unfiltered, raw, and sometimes not nice, you know, and, uh, and it's hard to hear sometimes. But, uh, you know, in talking to my kids, I've taken a different approach. You know, I'm still stern and firm, but... Uh, there's a little bit of uh, love sprinkled in there. <laughs> Sebastian Maniscalco, the film definitely has a lot of love sprinkled through, a lot of humor too. Great to have you with us this morning and congrats on the film. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Can't wait to see it. Out today. Out there today. Can I take the kids? No. Little maybe, young. Little young. Maybe Sienna. Little young. Maybe. All right. Memorial Day weekend kicking off. What is expected to be really a busy travel season this summer? You're looking at live pictures from the Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport in Atlanta. So how are most Americans spending the weekend? Oh. Ooh, name, yes. Wait, wait, wait. There's name the boy. movie. Name the movie, Harry. What movie is this song from? You don't know. How does Harry not know? I feel like you know just all numbers. movies he and do all movies. music. He does numbers and he dances. Memorial Day, a federal holiday for Americans to honor the men and women who died serving in the military so that we could remain free. So how are Americans using their time off? Senior data reporter Harry Anton is here with this morning's number. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So this morning's number is... 90. Why? Because Memorial Day is a payday off for 90% of all U.S. workers. It's one of the top holidays for getting a day off. 
And more than that, Americans believe that it should be a day off. So this is a great question that was asked. Should be a national holiday? 82% of Americans believe it should be a national holiday. That is tops of any holiday. Beats out New Year's Day at 80% and Labor Day at 76%. There we go. So their wish came true. They get yes. their national holiday. The big question for a lot of people is, what are you doing this weekend? Yes. How are you spending the weekend? For many people, it's the official kickoff to summer. So what are we up to? So what are we up to? Okay. The top Memorial Weekend Day plans, relax or do nothing. Number one, I like that one. That is great. Number two, see family. Number three, a cookout, obviously, a Memorial Day weekend cookout. So what are you going to cook? What are Americans' favorite foods to grill on the barbecue? Beef is number one at 39%. Then you get chicken at 27%, pork 11%, veggies 10%, fish 10%. That's a little too healthy for me, I think. <laughs> Those are my top two. That's why you look so great. I, I got to use your secrets. But of course, I think the real question is, when does summer unofficially start? Memorial Day holiday comes in number one at 45%. Schools let out at 41%. 20 years ago, I would have said that was the answer. Or whenever I take a vacay, 10%. If that were the case, I would, in fact, never have a start to summer because I... <laughs> Never. Are you take wor you're off. working Monday? No, I'm I, I'm taking. See, off. stop complaining. Nah, I like to complain. It's my Jewish best. way. That's what he does best. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Harry, thank you very thank you. much. Uh, well, a terrifying moment caught on camera here. The moment a car is stolen, but with a toddler still inside. So take a look at this. You'll see a teenager walking up to the white SUV before jumping in the driver's seat and driving away. The mother says she was dropping her children off at their grandmother's house. So she walked her two-year-old to the steps. Her 14-month-old daughter was still in the car. The suspect did eventually ditch the car before taking off on foot. Family members say the baby was not injured. Mm. Scary moments, though. We'll be right back. So pro snowboarder Kevin Pierce was just 22 years old when a catastrophic snowboarding accident derailed his Olympic dreams. In 2009, he suffered a traumatic brain injury while he was training in Utah. His older brother Adam stayed by his side throughout his recovery and together they found yoga. And Adam says he watched his brother come back to life. Now Adam brings yoga to other traumatic brain injury survivors and that makes him a CNN hero. I think people feel isolated after brain injury because they don't feel able. It's hard. I've lost my identity. And when we allow people to be vulnerable and who they are, there is a deep connection formed because there is so much common understanding of the challenges that go on with brain injury. The changes I see most after people with TBI practice yoga are probably a deeper connection to self, helping them cultivate greater awareness and self-compassion allows them to meet the constant changes so much more. For more on Adam's work, go to CNNHeroes.com. While you're there, nominate your own hero. Thank you so much for joining us this Friday. Thank you for being here. I'll My see you pleasure. Next week. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks. Little bit of long weekend. I'll be off Monday, but I will see well you. Well deserved. I'll see Tuesday. you Tuesday. Everyone have a safe Memorial Day. CNN News Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness. 
providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.